we recognize that among the best ways you bless us is through the people you bring into our lives. And, uh, and we're thankful, Lord, for the people you, you, you do that you've set in our pathway and uh, you've set in our, in our community and our family. Lord, we're grateful for Terry. And now we pray you just stir up your gifts in him, encourage us and instruct us through your word, through your servant, our brother, in Jesus' name. Praise God. Wonderful he is. Um, I um, first came to Resurrection Church in at Christmas, about this time, 1979. And um, I came to watch people dance for the Lord, which I thought was against the law. So uh, I'm sorry to say it, but my first motivation was wrong. But uh, in, in a little pile, I know how it is. You're around the fire. The fire catches on. And that's what happened. The Lord saved me. And I was baptized in the Holy Spirit up in the pastor's office on April 4th, 1980 at 4.30 in the afternoon. Always remember that wonderful time. That was my birthday, my eternal birthday. And uh, thank you, Resurrection, for that. I'll tell you, even now, when I hear different people over the years talk about what a wonderful church they go to, my thought is immediately, you just don't know. You just don't know. This is the most wonderful church in Charlotte. Pastor Billy, all the pastors, elders, I want to say just personally, thank you so much for all you do, and the entire church staff, all you have done to keep this ministry vibrant, strong, powerful, yes. Because we're in a very hard time. There's a time. This is a time of sifting. We are seeing who's standing up to the challenge. Churches are falling left and right. Christians are discouraged. They're beaten down. So thank you. You continue to give us a place of refuge here and for the faith and the courage that has taken us. Um, yeah, so uh, after I was saved here, I, I served as a, a deacon in the church and involved with the performance ministry for about six years. And the Lord called me to seminary, went to seminary, came out of there, and then um, served in pastoral ministry for 18 years. And then uh, about, about five years ago, the Lord brought me back over here. I was more broken then. I was a very broken person. Some personal things had gone on that had been very difficult. Some of you know about. But um, you all have been your wonderful selves. People I knew 40 years ago reached out and were just as loving and sweet as you always were. And I just felt back at home. And so the Lord has been reviving me. And it's been a wonderful thing. So just in the past year, he's been stirring in my heart 
that same call to minister, to speak his word, that he's been opening doors for that. So I, I preached uh, for eight weeks at a church down in Columbia that didn't have a pastor back in the spring. And I got to tell you, the more I stood up and spoke his word, the more the fire grew. And the little congregation down there came to me. They said, we've never had a Lutheran pastor speak to us like you do. I said, I guess not. So then uh, back um, then after that concluded, I said, well, Lord, what next? And so uh, I went on the Samaritans First Billy Graham website, and I saw that uh, for the Operation Christmas Child that Samaritans First operates through the uh, November and December, they were looking for uh, a chaplain, and I applied, and they hired me to be their chaplain. So I had no idea what was going to come out of all that, but uh, basically I'm not there in the evenings for nine hours, six nights a week. I speak to the groups, 200 to 700 people four times each evening. And uh, not only that, it's an interesting thing because a lot of the uh, people they have just moved into boxes are people sent by temporary staffing agencies. A lot of them are not Christian. A lot of them are, are this very same kind of people we just talked about as we were singing that song, outcasts, the broken, homeless people. The other night, there was a young man who um, came to me. If he walked in here, he'd scare you. Big, tough-looking guy, and he was. He told me, he said, I just got a phone call. Pastor or chaplain, they call me that both. And it said, uh, he said, and the phone call said that uh, my brother had just been shot. He said, and I've, I've run in gangs most of my life. He said, the first thing I thought is, go home, get your gun, and go shoot who shot your brother. But something told me I should talk to you before I leave this building. So we did talk. And then we prayed. And I walked out with him. And uh, he left. And um, he didn't come back for a few days. But when he came back, he was a different person. He said, I accepted Jesus. And he has become one of the sweetest spirited people. He'd still scare you if he walked in here. But he loves the Lord, and now he's telling me about people with other problems. And uh, I'll tell you something, too, about this, about these things. You know what? They do not stop you from being who you are in Jesus. They do not stop you from serving the Lord and speaking his word. When I'm ministering to these individuals one-on-one -on -one throughout that huge building, I'm talking through this, okay? And they're talking through this. It'll just make me talk louder. Now, I'll tell you a story. That was a little digression, but I'll tell you what brought me to this today. Um, back in 2003, I was at the, the hospital over in Matthews because there was a man there who was in really bad shape. That was my father. And uh, he was 80 years old. He had a lot of conditions wrong with him. He had diabetes, congestive heart failure. Um, they found out he had leukemia. And he was suffering from pneumonia. He was in very bad shape. My father was a very hard person. He was one of those who'd been raised up in the Great Depression. Had, he told me if there were days I'll be, he had to eat with a biscuit the entire day. Hard times made hard people. And so he, um, he had never wanted much to do with pastors or doctors. He was sure that both of them were after his money. So he avoided church. He would sometimes go to church with my mom. She loved Jesus. 
Pastor got to visit my mom just before she left us. And she loved Jesus. And um, so anyway, of course, I talked to my father many times. He'd even been to my church and, and heard me preach from time to time, but no response. So now here he is, and he's in his last decades of life. See that? And I got to tell you, the, the doctor's taking him. They say, your father is scaring everybody to death up here in the ICU. He's screaming and cursing the nurses and doctors. And he said, um, he, he is, but he's in really bad physical shape. Had five. So anyway, um, as he was declining, I had five different pastor friends. Because, you know, sometimes it's hard to hear these things about God from your, your own family. All right, praise the Lord. So anyway, I had five different pastor friends come up during the, that last two weeks to talk to my dad and witness to him, try to help him. See, he needed Jesus because my father was on the wrong path. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to destruction. And that's the path he was on. He's one of the most profane men I've ever heard. My, I said my first swear word when I was three years old. My mother found a way to fix that. I remember vividly. But if that's what goes in, that's what comes out, you know. So, um, five different pastors. My father, he was not rude, but he just dismissed it. He wasn't interested. And then we get to where the doctors say, you know, if he, he, was, he went into a coma. He was three days in a coma. He didn't move. He didn't speak. He didn't eat. He did nothing. He was just lay there. And the doctor said, his vital signs are bad shape, blood pressure's going down, heartbeats, very erratic. They said, we'll be surprised if he makes it through the night. So relatives, we got a lot of relatives around here, but they had kind of all dissipated, left. I was the only person up there with him, and I was in the ICU. And, of course, I was praying hard. Didn't know really what else I could do or say. But I was sitting there praying, and then suddenly a storm came up. And it was a violent storm. You could feel the walls in the hospital shaking. Now, we're deep, I'm, I'm deep on the inside in the ICU. There's no windows around where I was. But... Um, I just could hear the noise. The thunder was so loud outside. And then suddenly, the place went black. And I mean, no lights anywhere. And I'm sitting in this little chair thinking, uh-oh, that's not supposed to happen in here. And I didn't know what to do because you couldn't see anything. Now, Bible tells me two things that I can know. How much do you really know about before you were born about yourself? The Bible says before I was born, God already knew me. He knew my spirit. He also knew that I was a broken spirit, that I was lost, that I was a sinner, that I, did, I was destined for hell, apart from the salvation that he only offers through his son. The Bible says the one who sins must die. And I could just hear lying there in that, I mean, sitting there in the hospital, the voice of the enemy speaking. It's over. We beat it. 
know, those kind of thoughts bring you down. Even you that knew that you're leader, they discourage you. They make you feel like you are defeated. Listen, every testimony in the Bible is about God's love battling the devil's wickedness. And when you look at it, when you look at the battle at the beginning, nobody would bet on us. We always have the odds against us. David walks out to meet Goliath, a man twice his size, a man wearing full body armor, a spear 12 feet long. Most of us couldn't even try to throw a spear that big. David's never even been in a, in a war before. He's got no armor. He's got a sling and a few little stones. Okay? The battle looks heavily against David. No one would bet on David. The Philistines and Goliath are standing there watching this young man, and they're thinking the same thing. It's over. He's beaten. We've won. Joseph and his brothers, they're envious. You know, sometimes when you're a dreamer, people who don't dream don't like that. People without vision don't like people with vision sometimes. And they saw him coming across the field, and they said, here comes that dreamer. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. And you know the story, I believe. They threw him into a hole, told their father he'd been killed. And as they sold him into slavery, and as I can just picture it as they, they bound him up with ropes, put him there on, on in, the, in the caravan, taking him off to slavery in Egypt. And you could just hear his brothers thinking, it's over. We beat him. We've won. You know, we live in a Christian culture that often is more in love with Christian American culture than they are actually with Jesus and the Bible. You know, I hear people saying, you know, I just want this to be over. Well, we all want it to be over. We want to go back to the way it was. I don't know that that will happen. Because I think God is, is trying to squeeze something more out of us. And I think we can resist that by wanting to go back and say, somehow, let's let it be the way that it was before. This is just me personally. I just don't know that that's going to happen. Because I know he's bringing out new things inside me. I think he's bringing about new things in other people. But I think some of us are letting our, our fire, we're letting it go down, down, down. You know, that fire is eternal. You don't want it to go down. It was meant to grow and be alive and be strong. Listen. We can become lukewarm, the Bible says, and lukewarm always loses out to either hot or cold. And it is the best way to be miserable in our faith. The Bible is a book of extremes. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul wrote, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect towards some people who think they live by the this world. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power, divine power, divine power to demolish strongholds. Not argue against strongholds, not debate strongholds, to demolish strongholds. That's a big word. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up 
against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes says that there is a time for war and a time for peace. I think sometimes because we love American Christian culture so much, we we've kind of lost sight about that time for war. We love the time for peace, and I love peace. We all love peace. But when war comes, we're foolish not to recognize it. And I think there's great spiritual conflict going on. Back um, around 1916, I believe it was, there was a man named Alvin. Alvin was a very loving Christian man. He had had some trouble with alcohol, but he had given his life to Jesus. And he was part of a, a Christian denomination we would call pacifist, uh, pacifist Christians, okay? Anti-war, peace-loving people, that's fine. And he loved it. He loved the scriptures. He loved serving God. He was a lay person, but he was studying with his pastor. He wanted to go into ministry. Became one of the gentlest people you can imagine. But war was going on, World War I. And they were conscripting men all over. So he got a letter. He was being drafted. He went to his pastor. He said, will you write a letter? Tell them I'm a conscientious objector. I object to war, killing, and violence. And his pastor did it. Problem was, the draft board said, we don't have a, a, an official government recognition of your church as a denomination. So we do not recognize Alvin's letter. So his pastor comforted him, and Alvin, being quite distressed, said, I guess if I have to go, I'll go. He said, I sure don't want to shoot anybody. I don't want to fight anybody. Nonetheless, he was put into an infantry unit. He was faithful to his duties, and he became a, a corporal, which is the second lowest rank that you can have. Anyway, they were marching into battle, a very fierce battle, Battle of Salma, against the Germans, the enemy, and um, his group was told to take a certain hill because there were German machine guns at the top of the hill firing down, and it was just killing hundreds and hundreds of the American soldiers. So as they marched around, someone shot, killed the commanding officer. Suddenly Alvin, being with the 17 privates, he was the only corporal, he was the ranking person. He was suddenly in charge of attacking this hill. A pacifist. He wants to go into battle with a pacifist, right? But he was trying to do his duties, and so uh, they engaged the battle, and um, half the men that he had with him got shot. Then they captured a few of the enemy, so he left the rest of his men there to guard the, uh, guard the prisoners. And he said, I'm just going to go on here by myself. So he worked his way up, and they were shooting machine guns, and the other German soldiers on the hill shooting down on him. And Alvin just kept, uh, he was a pretty good shot. Kind of like, well, if I've got to be here, Lord, don't let me kill any more of them than I have to. So he kept calling, surrender, surrender. And they would stand up and shoot, and so he would shoot one. I want you to surrender. And they kept shooting, he'd shoot another one. Eventually, he made his way to the top of the hill, and he took out the machine gun. The commanding officer said, we surrender. Oh, okay. Alvin's all alone. The pacifist, the commanding officer calls his men out. There are 90 soldiers walk out, lay down their weapons, and raise their arms. So here's Alvin marching 90 men by himself. 
he sends the rest of his six or seven troops that are left. And as they're marching back to camp, 40 more German soldiers see him and say, oh, well, we must be surrendering. They lay down their guns and they go too. Ended up being 132 men Alvin brought back captive. Well, that man was, do we, if we have that picture, if y'all can put it up on the screen. This was uh, Alvin York. Alvin York was that Christian pacifist, good old country boy, loved Jesus, loved to serve his pastor. But when God said it's time for war, he went to war and did what he was called to and needed to do. He was given the Medal of Honor, given the rank of sergeant. And if you've never seen that great movie, it's an old black and white film. It is awesome. Yeah. Our weapons are powerful, divine power. Interesting. The German officer said later, he said, I thought there were maybe a thousand men with him. We don't battle by the flesh. We battle by the spirit. You don't know what the spirit might do until you start talking to the spirit. Let that fire burn and respond to it. You know, when I show up for work at, at Samaritan's Purpose, which I carry a little satchel, and they always have to check it, you know, security like everybody has now. And I'll always ask them, they'll say, have you got a weapon in here? I say, I've got a sword. Some of you not as old a sword as the Bible's referred to. And they start looking for my sword. A lot of times when we accept Christ, we don't read the fine print. You see, the fine print says you become a soldier in the greatest army ever, the army of God. If you belong to Christ, you are in that army. You do know that if you're a cook in the army, they still train you to fight and use a weapon. Everybody's trained because you never know what the situation might be. You cannot raise the white flag in this army. You cannot surrender. You cannot roll over because this army only knows victory. And that's the one that we are in. Listen. Jesus, the devil, hated Jesus passionately. He didn't just want to kill him. He wanted to change him, destroy him, and all his works. And listen, Jesus lives in you, and that means he hates you passionately. Don't be surprised when you stumble over things that happen in life because that's going to happen. He's the God of this world. We're not designed for this world. We're designed for eternity. We live forever. I'm going to be with you a trillion years from now. I hope you're okay with that. You know, sometimes we forget what we've actually gone through. I think we get kind of cool in our faith and we forget. Imagine a fireman leaning against his truck. You can see his face. He's exhausted. You ask a nearby bystander, what did this fireman, what's he been doing? They say, well, he just saved this lady. Really? What did he save her from? Was she drowning? Well, I don't know. Maybe, was she in an auto wreck? I, I don't know. You find out, no, she was in a fire. We've got to remember what we're saved from. Jesus saved us from eternity in fire. 
I don't know if you've ever suffered a burn before. Try it first. But imagine a thousand times more than what you've ever experienced. And it goes on forever and ever. That's what we're saved from. You know, sometimes when I hear about the good news, I say, you know, I think we are kind of underestimating what this is about. Because that means hell is the bad news. I've had bad news before. It didn't compare to hell. To me, hell is horrible news. It's the most miserable, terrible concept anybody ever had. But it was designed for a reason, for the devil and his angels. That tells you how evil God sees it. But it means that heaven is a million times more wonderful. I consider it the horrible news versus the wonderful news. And I think if we come back to that, man, our fire can start to burn again. I know I need fire. I do have fire. But it's your fault, not yours. I caught it from you. The best church in Charlottetown. Best worship team. Best worship team. I don't care what else you hear. Great worship team. I would rather worship here than any place I've ever been. Now, as I'm wrapping up here, back at the hospital, in the pitch black, suddenly, the lights start flickering back on. I mean, they're, it's pitch black for like 30 seconds to a minute, I don't know. Suddenly, the lights start flickering back on. I'm wondering, what is going on here? Suddenly, a little nurse comes running in. She sees me. I kind of surprised her, you know, because it's dark. She sees me. She says, that has never happened in this hospital. And she's flicking on switches and breathing machines and everything. She's pushing buttons left and right. She said, that has never happened in this hospital. Our systems are built. She said, I've been here 13 years. Our systems are built so that if there's the slightest degree of flux in the power flow, immediately our generators kick in and you don't even know what happened. Because we've got life support machines going here. Her face looked in shock. And the Lord spoke to me and said, go speak to your father one more time. So I did. I walked over to him and I took his hand and I said, I said, Daddy, I know that you probably can't speak to me. But Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, you might be also. I said, Daddy, I know you can't speak, but if you could just let me know, could you just squeeze my hand or blink your eyes or anything to let me know? Do, do you want Jesus to come and take you to be with him? And a moment later, he opened just one eye, his left eye, I remember vividly. And I don't mean a trick. I mean, he opened it just like I'm looking at you right now. And he winked at me twice. And that was it. And then I was shocked. You know how that is when you pray for something, especially when you've been praying for all those years. And suddenly you say, oh, he wants Jesus to come for me. And so I, I said a prayer with him. 
And the next minute, my sister came running in. She had gone to take some relatives back home. And she says, what's going on? I said, Daddy, just let me know. He wants Jesus. He wants to accept Jesus. Let Jesus come to take them. And my sister, she's a Holy Ghost woman too, okay? She said, I knew it. She said, that is the worst storm I've ever been in in my life. The roads flooded. I couldn't even get to the hospital. I had to pull off into a parking lot, and the Holy Spirit said to me, there's a battle going on in the heavenlies right now for your father's soul. She said, I've been praying in my prayer language more than I ever have in my entire life. And then I said, well, let's pray now. So we joined hands with my dad, and we started praying for him. I mean, 30 seconds later, suddenly we see his eyes open up, and then he's gone. That next instant, I love this part, the next instant, the Lord gave me a vision, and he showed me my father in his hospital gown, and he was rising up. And I'm looking up watching this, and he's rising up. And as he's rising, I see his Jesus up above him. And he's rising up to Jesus. And as he's rising, I notice flowers are popping out all over him. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I looking at? But <laughs> you would have had to have been there. When he finally gets to Jesus, my father is like a big bouquet of flowers with his neck sticking out and his hands and his feet. I said, what, what in the world is that? And then the Lord spoke to me and he said, that's all, you know, the Bible says that the word of God are the seeds. Those are the seeds of God's word that have been sown into his soul for years and years and years. And now all at once, they're bearing fruit. So I share this because we do not give up. We're the army that wins. And it doesn't matter what's going on out there. It doesn't matter what the world's saying. And the devil's greatest tool is fear. So if you're dealing with fear, know what's going on. Know that it's normal. You know, Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you as though it's something strange. It's going to happen. But no, you're still stronger because the fire is inside you, but it's greater than the fire outside. But you nurture that, you minister that, and you have a prayer language, you use that prayer language. Don't let it grow rusty. That's one of your most powerful weapons. And sow the seed. Yeah, you witness to that loved one over and over and over Seems like nothing's happening. You're sowing seeds. You're putting them into their soul, into their mind. One sows, another reaps. You don't know what God is going to do. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And if we die, listen, you will not die of anything one day before you're supposed to. God already knows how many days I'm going to live, and you too. So do not let fear of death control your thinking. On anything. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
is to die, you step into that wonderful glory. If you live, you stand for it and live for it because this army always wins. Praise the Lord.